I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Shark. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo. Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is Monday, March 28th, 1977. We're at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles at the 49th Annual Academy Awards, honoring the films of 1976. If you're here, you're choosing to watch this over the NCAA Championship game, which is on NBC, but we're on ABC, and we <laughs> and we have the Oscars. We're here for the movie fans. We're the ultimate counter-programming. And... We have been presided over by Richard Pryor, Ellen Burstyn, Jane Fonda, and Warren Beatty. What weird, how, how are they choosing hosts these days? <laughs> and it's time, <laughs> not for the big award of the night, no, 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 but to discuss the nominees. This is a, we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk about the winner later, so. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So maybe we should do a, and the nominees are. And the nominees glory. are. Go ahead. Bound for Glory, All the President's Men, Network, Taxi Driver, and Rocky. But well, what are we going to talk yes. about this week, Rance? What are we going to talk We're, about? We are going to talk about the four nominees. Now, I a little bit of an introduction. You may be wondering what's significant about the 49th Annual Academy Awards. What's significant about 1976? Well, way, way back a couple years ago when Sam and I first met to discuss doing this Oscar podcast... We talked about our favorite years, and one year that we agreed on as being one of our favorites, as far as like a stacked Best Picture nominee category goes, is the Best Picture nominees for 1976. So we are largely here because Sam and I think that this is a particularly strong year in the category. Oh, yes. And I believe AFI would agree with us <laughs> as well. <laughs> I mean, yes, the, three of the films we're going to talk about this week are on AFI's 100 four. movies of all time. Four. You're right. So, four. You're right. I'm sorry. Four, four of them. How could well, I forget yeah, that one? <laughs> so you, you're saying of the ones we're talking about this week, three. Yes. Including yes, next three week, three of the four. four. Yes. Yep. So the only and one. And four of the five nominees. And four yes. of the five. Yep. So the only one not to be included on the AFI's. 100 movies of all times is bound for glory the lone well let's forgotten... go ahead and let's let's just get that one out of the way because because i don't think I anyone's listening to this to talk about bound for glory <laughs> yes. um, let's just get this one through absolutely well, i'm going to california and i'll be sleeping out every night well, i'm going to california well, i'll be sleeping out every night so here's a brief summary of Bound for Glory. This is a somewhat fictionalized retelling of the life of the famous folk singer-songwriter Woody Guthrie and how he uses his music to inspire labor movements during the Dust Bowl era of the Great Depression. In a nutshell, that's what we're talking about here. Now, I had not seen this movie before. Had you seen this one before? I don't think you had. No, and might I tell everyone in the audience, uh, both Sam and I had to really scour to try and find this movie because it is not available on any major streaming platform even to rent so this is Correct. a very hard to find film yeah it is and i find that kind of strange especially coming from director hal ashby who hal ashby? has 
so many big, important movies in the 1970s. I, I just find it very bizarre that for some reason this Best one has fallen through the cracks. Yeah, like he's a, a regular in the Oscar ballot throughout the 1970s. So I find it very bizarre that for some reason this one is being hidden <laughs> i don't know why i have no idea why yeah it's uh, it's kind of weird um and it uh i mean like and you know david carradine Garrity, uh, david carradine is a fairly significant name and he mm-hmm. certainly uh for the way that he died a little over a decade ago is quite infamous as well um you wait, do, wait, how do you did he die that? i don't oh, know you if don't i do remember. um he died of um a uh, let me get the term correct, because um, I don't want to uh, say the wrong words here. Okay, he died of autoerotic asphyxiation. Asphyxiate. Oh God, autoerotic at asphyxiation. There we go. Uh, whoa. <laughs> I was tripping up on the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he uh, he was found, and he had been you know doing something. Uh, you know, and yeah, yeah. Oh my God! Uh, wow, I had no idea. At seventy-two, that's what was going goodness, on. Goodness, goodness, goodness! Oh wow. So yeah, uh, of course he's also a part of you know quite the acting family. Uh, his dad was John Carradine. His uh, half brothers were Keith and Robert Carradine. Carradine, both mm-hmm. actors, and um, uh, his niece is Martha Plimpton, who Plimpton who's also an actress. So, um, you know, part of quite the acting legacy here. And, uh, you know, was appearing in movies. Apparently, they used to call him the hardest working actor in Hollywood. And it was because he just, you know, would I don't think he said no to anything, you know, and was doing like direct-to-video movies and theatrical films and and all that stuff right up until he died. And he he actually uh, had something like 10 movies that hadn't been released at the time of his death that he had already completed. So he kept having product released for a couple years after he died. Yeah, I think people probably know him best as Bill in the Kill Bill films. I know we haven't spoken in some time. And the last time we spoke wasn't the most pleasant. But you've got to get over being mad at me. And start becoming afraid because she is coming. And she's coming to kill you. Yes. That is, uh... I feel like yes. that's probably his biggest role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. His definitely most recognizable performance. So, I want to ask you, though. Do you think... Because he never received an Oscar nomination. Never. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you think this performance deserved and warranted a Best Actor nomination? Well, here's the deal. Um... I when I gave Bound for Glory a star rating, I gave it three out of five, uh, which spoiler is by far the lowest of these nominees. Um, <laughs> I I didn't give it any lower than that though because of uh, two reasons. One is his performance, and the other is the cinematography. Mm, um, sure, but the um, but I did feel as if he did the best job someone could do with that role in that script. And had I been more interested in the subject matter, maybe I would have um, enjoyed the film more, but I can't fault his performance. So I do find it a little bizarre that he's not, 
nominated um but you know the only one of the best actor nominees i haven't seen is um the uh seven beauties is the movie i haven't seen in this list here so i can't really comment on that performance but i will say the other four performances i i wouldn't take out of here so definitely yeah yeah yeah, it's a it's a Um, a tough call it's a tough call it is and i ask because Bound for Glory is the only of the five Best Picture nominees not to receive any acting nominations. All the other four receive at least one, many of them, multiple, multiple, multiple nominations in the acting categories. They pretty much dominate the acting field, these Best Picture nominees, minus Bound mm-hmm. for Glory. And I wonder if I that was that... kind of a precursor to saying this isn't really holding much weight <laughs> as far yeah, as and if it's going to win or not. There isn't a Best director nomination as well also that yep which is an indicator um i do think that uh melinda dillon um is really really good in the movie and maybe we'll discuss this next week when we get to snubs but just while we're on the movie um she plays a dual role in the film and you won't even recognize that she's playing a dual role because they're two completely different characterizations and she has a lot more to do with one than the other um but uh she's just really she's really really good in the movie she's so good where's her supporting actress nomination that's my Uh, listen i love melinda dillon so much uh yes for those of you who are like i know that name but where is she she's the mom in a christmas story that'll just Mm -hmm. give you a face with this name here she's brilliant and i do think she's wonderful she was nominated for uh, Golden Globe for Outstanding Debut Performance for this movie, which I think is ridiculous because she had been acting since the mid-60s. So this is not her debut, but the Golden Globes work on their own rules, as we all know. Um, but you're right, the dual performance is really, really um, interesting. When I was watching this movie, um, after you know she after he leaves, because uh, she's placed his wife, and then he leaves her to go make money in California to send back for her later, she then mm-hmm. takes over the role of what is like uh, Tennessee Sioux or Memphis Sioux? Memphis Sioux, there it is. Yes, who's a part of his band, radio band that he's making money doing. And when I was watching it, I was like, why does she look so familiar? There's something about (laughs) her face. And then I was like, oh my God, that's Melinda Dillon. And when I did some digging into this, the reason she got dual roles is because Melinda Dillon finished her... Um, filming for the wife role very quickly. You know, she's only in at the beginning and the end. And when she was done, um, Hal Ashby uh, recognized that Melinda Dillon was so sad that she had finished filming. She had had so much fun. They worked really, really well together. And so to, like, cheer her up and, like, raise her spirits, he gave her the other role so she could stick (laughs) around throughout the rest of filming. And I think that's so awesome. (laughs) It's so cool. And, you know, she does do a great job with both. But you mentioned when she comes back as the wife character at the end of the film, that's where I really think she gets the scene that is like, ah, this should have been, this could have been a nomination. Well, that sure ain't the way it seems. You're spending your whole life out there trying to fix the world. Yeah, she Um, Again, this is a really stacked year. This is a stacked year. And I... (laughs) Yes, um, it is. And we'll have, and luckily, three of the nominees in Best Supporting Actress are from movies that we're going to be discussing. So we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Very um, true. Uh, and one of the other performances, I don't know, might be a highlight. I mean, a spotlight of mine next week. So we'll see. <laughs> yes, um, God. <laughs> yes, God. 
Um, uh, okay, let's get into the. You mentioned the cinematography but, of yes, this movie. Yes. I think we should talk about the beautiful <laughs> camera work. It's beautiful. I mean, this how is do you make the, the Dust Bowl stunning. look stunning? Ugh. It's like everything has that um, has a golden tint to it, and it's yes. like glowing. And I mean, both Sam and I, I think, had to watch probably inferior copies of this movie because yep. that was all that existed. But even with not the highest quality available, you still got these just absolutely stunning images. And it is the first movie to use um, a Steadicam. And yes. it happens in this, it's a really stunning shot where um, it starts as a crane shot coming down into this, um, what do they call them? Uh, the camps, the... Uh, um, yes, like the... Um, the, uh, the work, I don't there's say. a name for them. I can't yes. think of words right now. It's like a worker's camp. It's where the farm pickers the camp, basically. Yeah. Yeah, where yeah. all the people who are working in California for these, you know, orange grove picking jobs and whatnot you know they're in this camp and it comes down um through into the camp through a crane shot and then seamlessly starts to follow uh you know woody guthrie through the camp and um they used a steady cam for the first time ever and it's why there is a smooth transition with the cameraman getting off of the crane and starting to walk behind him and it's a it's a wonderful shot um, it is. It's very impressive. The, the cinematography in this movie, I it makes it sound like we are just like the biggest fans of these this movie ever, aren't we? Um, but <laughs> it does. overall, I I think the movie's kind of dull, and maybe people who are fans of Woody Guthrie would feel differently, but or fans of folk music, but because you, you're going to get a lot yeah. of folk music if you <laughs> listen. Yep. If you watch this movie, you get folk song every two minutes, but um, uh. Overall, I think it is, without question, the weakest of the nominees. Could not agree more. Yes. Yes. Now, might I say that is the only declarative statement I think I can make this week, because the movies that we are about to discuss are deservedly on the AFI Top 100 list. That's all I'm going to start Definitely. off by saying. <laughs> yes. So let's actually move on to our next nominee. I feel like the next one to talk about is Taxi Driver, as it awesome. also did not receive a Best Directing nomination. Yeah, and what's that about? <laughs> which, uh, yes, which makes zero fucking sense. It, I, I, yeah, this is one of those omissions that I don't know if I'll ever understand. Maybe it's just because no. the Academy hadn't quite warmed to Martin Scorsese yet. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't get a nom for Mean Streets. That was kind of an overlooked movie as well a few years back. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe they just thought more of honoring the performances in this film since De Niro is now such a huge name after his Oscar for Godfather 2. So, you know, maybe they just weren't quite ready to embrace Scorsese as they do now, you know? Which, yeah, yeah. You know, looking back, it's ridiculous to us now, but, you know, he was still kind of a rising auteur at this time. Yes, he was. And, um, and I mean, I appreciate the fact, I, I mean, they always took any opportunity they could to give Ingmar Bergman, Ingmar Bergman a Best Director nomination, but not nominate his movie for Best Picture. And um, <laughs> true. that happens true. multiple times. Um, but, um, and I appreciate the fact that we have our first woman uh, ever nominated for Best Director this year. Um, yes. And, uh, Wurt Muller. Yes. Mueller. Wurt Mueller. Uh, for the foreign film Seven Beauties, and I can't comment on that film. 
Um, so I'm going to go with maybe taking Ingmar out of this race uh, to give the best director nomination to um, Martin Scorsese for Taxi Driver because um, Taxi Driver is just uh, a faultless. <laughs> oh, God. It's, you know? It's, yeah, it just defines <laughs> 70s cinema, in my opinion, you know? And, and post-Vietnam yes. psychological problems oh, and drama post watergate scandal you know what i mean oh. like it's very much dealing with the post Everything. yeah yes these these ptsd feelings that people were experiencing after all of this trauma from being at war for so long and then having a president that you can't trust can you trust any president now it just fed into all those fears and anxieties that people were experiencing real quick let me yeah. just give a quick summary um, Taxi Driver, if you haven't seen it, it is about a mentally unstable Vietnam War veteran who is working as a New York City taxi driver, and it depicts his spiral into violence in an attempt to save a young female prostitute, played by Jodie Foster. I feel like we need to talk about Jodie Foster, a 12-year-old oh, when she played God. this prostitute. Good. So good. So She's brilliant. She is brilliant, but we should talk about this little detail do you think do mm-hmm. you think it's appropriate to have a 12 year old playing a role like this well i mean that is something that was hugely controversial at the time hugely controversial um obviously um she's a 12 year old playing a 12 year old correct um so it's not like she's i mean it's the appropriate age for the role most mm-hmm. people probably would have ca- cast somebody who was at least a little bit older who looked younger to right. play the part. But um, her performance is, I mean, like, the scenes are so uncomfortable with her. It does sound from reading about it like they did the best they could to shield her from the worst of the material and to, um, they put her through, like, uh, psychoanalysis to make sure that she wouldn't be scarred emotionally by participating with the film it does feel as if they they probably did as much as they could for her which is the only reason why i can say like i don't see i mean like i how who else plays this <laughs> you know i know um, i know it's well funny like reading does. the list of it's funny reading the list of potential actresses that they were might choose like melanie griffith was their first choice young carrie fisher came in to read so it's all of Mm. like those you know those young actresses of the 70s who later flourished in the 80s this was kind of a role they were all trying to get and it did ultimately go carrie fisher and and melanie griffith were both a little bit older too they were exactly teenagers by this point uh, Carrie Fisher, uh, we didn't mention this last week, but she made her film debut in 1975 with um, Shampoo. Um, yes. Playing, I think, yep. about a... I think she was about 14, 15 when that happened. Um, and she uses the F word in the movie, too, um, which apparently her mom wasn't happy about. But anyway... <laughs> Go figure. Go um, figure. So, yeah, I can see it, but... There's something about Jodie Foster's attitude in this movie that is so befitting of the role. I, I just have a difficult time seeing anyone else do it. And, I mean, it's, it isn't, she, I don't, she isn't really, um, 
inappropriately handled by the director or the screenplay if that makes sense mm-hmm. um like i don't feel that this is exploitation in any way um although with that said uh there was a man who became obsessed with jodie foster after seeing her in this film um and he decided to um emulate robert de niro in the film and uh, he ended up um, attempting to assassinate Ronald Reagan to try and impress Jodie Foster about five years after the film was released. And apparently Scorsese uh, really seriously considered quitting filmmaking after that incident happened. So, you know, there there is that um, part of it. So uh, it's it's a complicated topic, but... Being that this is what exists and that can't change, this is um, about as great a performance as I've seen a a a child give in my lifetime. So, oh, definitely, and I think it's also really important to note too the amount of work that Jodie Foster put into this from an acting standpoint. So, one thing that I read about that is she, Jodie Foster, um, shadowed a real prostitute, working prostitute, to prepare for this movie, and she actually also co-stars in the movie with her and something that Jodie Foster noted about this woman is that to help curb her addiction to I believe it was heroin this woman would put extra sugar on all of her food just so she wouldn't feel the need to use drugs and there's a scene in the movie where she's having breakfast with De Niro Oh my and god! She has. I'm she so has glad toast. you're talking about this. Yes, she has toast because I, I was wondering what it. that was about. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And she right. sprinkles extra sugar on the toast to have that same effect. So you kind of have the interpretation that maybe she's using as well. But I just think it's brilliant because she took this character trait that might seem inconsequential to somebody else, but she uses that to great effect for herself in the movie. And I just think it's. A, for someone who's a 12-year-old to like mm-hmm. take a nuance like that and put it into their work, I think is just speaks leaps and bounds as to how mature Jodie Foster probably really was at 12 years old. You know, she's still a child, but she definitely has an understanding for this person she's playing. It's almost like this is somebody that we're probably going to be talking about a few more times in the, you know, 15 or so years to follow. <laughs> um, I, uh, Without a doubt. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Jodie Foster. Always have been, always will be. Um, whether we're talking about uh, uh, Freaky Friday or Nell, you know, I'm all about it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> Nell, <No. laughs> uh, <laughs> I chikate, hey hey. Um, hey hey hey. That's a you know she she has her own language in the film. That's what I'm yes. That's what I'm mimicking. It's a it's a bizarre but oddly incredible performance. <laughs> But, um, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, anywho, that said, Jodie Foster, incredible. Um, the performances in this movie, incredible. There is not a false note in any of the casting. I Mm -hmm. really love, uh, Sybil Shepard as this like ethereal woman that he's obsessed with. I feel very bad for her because he is very creepy with her. Um, but I really like the way she's photographed and, you know, treated like this thing. And, you know, um, when they were casting her, they, they had said, like, we're looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were like, oh, why don't we just ask Sybil Shepherd? <laughs> 
boom. <laughs> How easy so, that is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, um, so something uh, that I want to talk about, though, the music ahead. in this. Ah, Bernard Herman. Yes, Bernard Humans Herman's music to this. It was his final score mm-hmm. um, that he has here uh, before his death. Um, what's really interesting about that, though, is that he actually had two nominations this year for Taxi Driver and another film called Obsession, which I haven't seen. Um, Brian De Palma. But I think it's kind of... That is Brian De Palma. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, there's two films here that he has up for nominations. But something funny about this, when he was um, in the recording studio, Steven Spielberg visited one day because he wanted to tell Bernard Herrmann how much of a fan he is about his work. And Herrmann turns to Spielberg and says, oh, yeah, well, then why do do you use John Williams for all your films? And I'm just like, wow, (laughs) that is such a hardcore thing. (laughs) I mean, like, what does the Jaw score sound like with Bernard Herrmann doing it, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Good point. Good but point. Did you notice um, at the very, very end of the film, um, there is a, um, and I didn't read about this. I just noticed this because I am a fan. Um, mm-hmm. The um, There is a cue at the very, very end as the opening credits are closing that is um, these three notes that I'll try to imitate. Um, bum, bum, bum. Like that. Mm-hmm. And those three notes are in Psycho, and they're... They're used uh, several different times throughout the score um, as uh, kind of like a moment of discovery cue. Um, They're in the parlor scene where Janet Leigh and uh, Anthony Perkins are talking to each other. It's in uh, one of the scenes where Vera Miles is like looking around the house. It's... uh, uh-huh. It's a it's a repeated cue in Psycho. Oh, it's also the very last cue of that movie. It's when the um, when the uh, her car is being pulled out of the swamp. Um, the oh. very last cue is bum bum bum, and then it says the end and and yes, uh, okay, yeah, 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 for sure. But it, the exact same three note sequence is at the end of Taxi Driver, and I've got to think like that's got to be a intentional nod to Psycho. Oh, it must you know? be, yeah, you definitely, know? or like uh, you know one of his trademarks that he uses in a lot of his scores. He, maybe but i i hadn't heard him use it in any of the other hitchcocks at least because he did a lot of hitchcock movies and i've seen i think all of those but um uh he also did of course like citizen kane and day the earth stood still and he had a very storied history and he died in 1975 right after completing work on taxi driver and obsession so those were his last two musical scores and he was nominated this year for both of them yeah but true um, and scorsese will also dedicate taxi driver to bernard herman as well as as well he uh he should have um and i I, 
unfortunately, neither one of them won. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> that went to the um, very incredibly creepy score for The Omen. Uh, by Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, that score I gives mean, me the heebie-jeebies. It is a good. It's like I can't. It is also a good score. It's apples and oranges. It really is. But, it really, really um, is. But uh, there is something about the saxophone theme in Taxi Driver that's so. Uh, it, it, it's so interesting that it's used for different moments and yet is appropriate every time you hear yes. it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's yep. sexy in certain sections and it's haunting in other sections and. I, uh, I, I, I think it's supposed to kind of represent nostalgia, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I can see totally that. unpacked it. I haven't totally, it, it's, it's great. It's a great yeah, score. It is. It is really, really good. Yeah. This is really the one of The photography in this movie, the photography in this movie too is also great. Yes, and also very innovative, too. I mean, this was filmed on, for that time, a shoestring budget of under $2 million. Mm -hmm. They had to get really creative with how to get camera angles, um, lighting setups. You know, this is really, you know, brings us back to um, the 1940s when people went out into the streets and started doing, you know, actual shooting um, rather than being bound to a studio. We're seeing a lot of that now here with these New York film directors and how they depict their hometown of New York mm-hmm. City. You know, it's very similar to all of that. Um, and a lot of effect. this was shot. A lot of this was shot in buildings that had been condemned on the West Side in New York right. City before. Before that entire section was, you know, made into what it is today, and everything was kind of in a highly um unsafe turnover i guess you could say yes. um man wouldn't you love to go back in time and buy a place on the west side in night in the oh 1970s and and sell it in 2021 um oh my god but uh <laughs> but um the uh they apparently just kind of had free reign over some of these condemned buildings um and they uh to do the the shot when the big climatic shootout scene happens, they mm-hmm. cut into the ceiling to do that tracking shot. Yeah. So they could, so they could get, uh, cause they, the shot like goes through, uh, the carnage of the situation and then kind of out onto the street. And that is another great, this is, I, it's really hard for me to choose which, um, movie I like better. Cinematic, cinematographically, between these two um because bound for glory is so beautiful but this movie is stunning as well and i say that like the other movies we're going to talk about don't have great cinematography because they do too (laughs) this is such a good year (laughs) such a good year Uh, and taxi driver definitely deserves taxi driver wasn't nominated for cinematography what wild right why how king <laughs> I'm kong you. was nominated for king kong the 1976 king kong which is which was skewered by critics got a best cinematography nomination were you goddamn chauvinist pig ape explain that True. to me i okay. can't i really can't 
Truly right. can't. Um, no, I really All think right. that, you know, it's, it's taking a while for the Academy to really warm up and embrace to Scorsese's style. I mean, when Scorsese submitted this to the ratings department, it got an X rating at first, you know? He had to go back and recolor correct that final scene so it wasn't it didn't look so intense and bloody and gory so i mean this is a movie that almost very nearly got an x rating for violence and gore which is you know very different from the reason why midnight cowboy got an x rating almost a decade before you know so this is people kind of thought this was kind of like a a snuff film almost you know like there was very divisive this is a very divisive film um, especially in the year it was released. And I think that's why you're seeing it miss out on some other key nominations. Yeah, totally. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to the next uh, movie and its competition. Which one do you want to discuss first? Let's do Network. Okay. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I have seen Network many times, and it is, Billions one, of of my, <laughs> it is one of my favorite films, yes. um, unquestionably. Um, the, I will give the description for this one, since uh, take Please a little do. bit of the load off of you. Um, network is a movie about a, you guessed it, television network. Um, <laughs> it has um, a nightly news show hosted by Howard Beale who is played by Peter Finch in the film. And uh, the show has been losing ratings, and so they are going to fire Peter Finch, um, or Howard Beale, the character. And um, when he is uh, announcing his retirement, he also announces that he is going to commit suicide on air. And when that gets announced, suddenly... His ratings start going up and he becomes, um, he morphs into this kind of crazed prophet on the airwaves and the network starts capitalizing on his crazed prophet persona. He goes from being a person who is speaking these truths that, um, that speak to an oppressed society, um, and then slowly the network starts getting them to, getting him to give the truths that help with their sponsors, and with the network executives, and all of this is being orchestrated by a new TV executive, a very ambitious, um, cold-hearted woman uh, by the name of Diane Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway. Um, there's also a character named Max, played by William Holden, who, um, is a, an honest guy, an honest executive, um, at the network. And, um, he, uh, he ends up having an affair with Diane Christensen, um, but he represents, uh, the honesty, um, and integrity in the business that is uh, being pushed out because he does get fired in the course of the events of the film. So um, there's a lot going on. It's all played as satire, uh, but the way in which the, the movie plays out uh, today, I think it comes across a little bit more of a straight drama just because it anticipates what cable news will be later on. 
So uh, Network is one of my favorite films. I've seen it several times over. Um, it has one of the best, like, and most well-constructed scripts ever uh, by Patty Chayefsky, um, who, you know, we've been fans of for years on this podcast now. Well, Oscar years, at least, because uh, we talked about him all the way back to Marty. Um, and this is uh, such a dense, layered, comical, but strikingly real script. And the ending of the movie on its face seems kind of ridiculous and exploitative and over the top. But because of the way the movie brings you into its reality, it comes off as something very, very real and very, very possible. And particularly, um, I feel like I just kind of have to spoil the ending to keep talking about it. So please hit fast forward if you haven't seen Network, because I don't want to spoil the ending of the movie for you. Um, but essentially, when Howard Beale's ratings start falling again, the the network executives decide the only thing they can do to um, alleviate the situation is to kill him. So they murder him on air with snipers that they hire, um, with a live studio audience watching. And then we watch as the different networks, we see multiple TV screens um, covering the murder, and then slowly the TV screens turn back to their regularly scheduled programming. Um, and it's just like such a powerful message about how uh, our society is just, um, how the networks rather are just looking for the next thing to drive ratings, which ratings are uh, work a little bit differently in 2021 with streaming and whatnot. But um, I think the message uh, remains very resonant. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a funny movie. It's a, uh, it's a strikingly dramatic film. It has um, the shortest best supporting actress support uh, performance of all time uh, with Beatrice Strait winning for playing William Holden's wife in the film. And she gets to be, you know, have her big rage scene when she confronts him about his affair with uh, Faye Dunaway's character. Say it. Keep telling me that you're obsessed, that you're infatuated. Say that you're in love with her. And it is an incredible scene, and she does an incredible job in it, so I don't think I really have a problem with her when. Um, and also, Best Actor and Best Actress both go to uh, Peter Finch and Faye Dunaway. Which is interesting, because Peter Finch, uh, we can talk about this too, Peter Finch and William Holden are both nominated for Best Actor, and Peter Finch uh, died before the ceremony, so his award is posthumous. Um, but William Holden has a, a bigger role than... I would say he's more of the lead, so it's an interesting I would discussion. Agree. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. That's a, that's a great kind of jumping-off point there. Between the two lead actor nominations, my personal pick is William Holden, and I ask mm -hmm. myself that every time I rewatch this movie... I go into it thinking, no, but Peter Finch, like, you know, he definitely has the showier role, I think. You know, he gets to be loud and bombastic, and he has all of the, um, like, super controversial things that he starts saying. You know, William Holden mm -hmm. kind of plays second fiddle to that energy. But I think that's why I'm more impressed with his performance, particularly his scenes with Faye Dunaway. There is such tense 
like ferocious passion and energy between the two. I mean, they basically hated each other's guts on set as well as I guess all of Faye Dunaway's co-stars did. But <laughs> you know what I mean. But but I think that works here. I think it really works here. And the ending, William Holden, that last shot with him and Faye Dunaway, it is. It still, like, resonates to me, the pain you see on his face, because he knows, you know, he, we all know, and then he finally gets it, that this woman has no feeling, you know? And he yeah, has to come do you to terms with that. I, I love, okay, a note in the set decoration that I have paid attention to the last few times I've watched it is, have you noticed how there is a poster in her bathroom for Singing in the Rain? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, have you, in her bathroom in the movie, there is a, a Singing in the Rain poster, and every time I see that, that I'm like, um, well, this is an MGM film, so it makes sense. That was also an MGM film, but sure. um, but still, it's like, like I, I wonder what the thought process was. Uh, that is You know, wild. is this, this her trying to relate to something that's happy? You know, is it, right. like, what is, what is that about? But... I agree with you. I think William Holden's role is is more complex and it is yeah. larger. Um, I almost would rather Peter Finch be in the best supporting actor race, personally. True. Um, True. But but he does have the he does have the iconic moment of the movie, which is yes. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Mad as hell. Um, and he's perfect. He's perfect in the role. I can't like I can't disagree with it at all. Um, it's just talking about how we designate categories is interesting. Yes. And I do um, think the the supporting nominees and the supporting win for Network are interesting because they're so, so small. You brought up Beatrice Strait, which this is one of my favorite supporting actress wins of all time. Those mm-hmm. of you who haven't seen this movie, at least go and watch her one scene. It's essentially one scene, one like five minute long scene, her monologue. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube. It's great. You can see, it's you great. can watch this that scene. It is brilliant. She Masterclass. is fantastic. She deserves this Oscar. I love it so much. So, so good. And then you yes. have Ned Beatty in the supporting actor mm-hmm. um, race for what is also essentially one scene, one long monologue. And what's interesting about that is he was not the original choice. The actor they had originally for this didn't kind of rise up to what Sidney Lumet wanted out of the performance. So they quickly recast and brought Ned Beatty in. And he only had one night to memorize all of that. (laughs) And then he was only on set for one day. And he has this famous comment now where he says, as an actor, you have to accept whatever role comes your way. Take it from me. I worked on Network for a day, and I got an Oscar nomination for it. <laughs> I'm like, that is the industry. <laughs> That's exactly that what is, happened. I mean, it's a it's a striking <laughs> scene. Um, the way it's shot is so striking, because you have uh, that line of green desk lamps on the table, you know? And mm-hmm. Uh, the way they make uh, Ned Beatty seem so large and and uh, Peter Finch seem so small, um, mm-hmm. but it's but it's still it's still interesting to me because it's it's a great moment. I don't think it has as much of an impact as Beatrice Strait's moment, but it Correct. is a great moment. Correct. Yeah, and I um, think that his moment there is more where the screenplay really shines because what he's talking about is what I think is so interesting. He really brings mm-hmm. up. 
countries as corporations, which I think is, you know, even more like accurate today than it was back in 1976. It's, he and, has the point of the movie. He's he's the one who delivers yeah. the message of the film, I think. Exactly. And maybe that's, exactly. maybe that's the... I don't have a problem with the nomination. It's just an interesting discussion yeah, yeah. when we talk about where you put Peter Finch, where you where you put William Holden, where you put him, you know, so. Yep. Um, yep, I see that. And I can far and away tell you Faye Dunaway in this movie is brilliant. <laughs> she is so cold-hearted, so cold-hearted. There was an earlier conversation she had with Sidney Lumet talking about the character because nobody really wanted this role. I mean, nobody wanted to be typecast as a completely unfeeling, unlovable woman, right? And Faye Dunaway, of course, embraced it. But Sidney Lumet warned her. He said, now I know you're going to try to find some kind of vulnerability here, but don't. She has mm-hmm. none. If you try to put it in, I will edit it out in the editing room. And I was, I'm like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Sidney Lumet is not fucking around. <laughs> A man. And just the, the, the way that in that very last scene where she's like, well, I guess we have to kill him. I, and you know? like just so cool and collected about it's, it it's terrifying it, that scene is so the first time you watch it you're like they're kidding they're, yeah they're kidding <laughs> they're, they're surely they must be this is sarcasm right and then no it is 100 percent not um it is uh man what an ending like that i i honestly think this is in my top five favorite endings to a film ever oh it's genius it is yeah and i say that with the fact that i think all four of the movies that are in the afi top 100 and these five nominees actually have really great endings (laughs) but Mm -hmm. this is among my favorite so again this is why we're talking about 1976 um anything else on network that you have to my only thing would say that it is the first to win three acting statutes since A Streetcar Named Desire. And it is still, mm-hmm. those are still the only two that have won three out of four acting Oscars. And only, um, let's see, only uh, 15 films have done that, have gotten nominations in every category. So Right, yes. And this is yeah. one that has... There's even fewer that have that have received five acting nominations. You know, we talked about All About Eve. This is another one of them. Uh, I think there might be a couple more, too, I can't think of right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so um, this is definitely, this is being honored, I feel, in the right areas. You get all the acting wins, the screenplay win. Um, mm-hmm. That, yeah, that all makes sense to me. I can understand why the Academy chose to honor it that way. Yeah, I think that the um, the wins make sense. Now, whether or not this is going to end up being a, a pick for me for Best Picture is yet to be determined because we still have True. we still have another movie that we have to talk about here. You know? We do. So let's talk about All the President's Men. This is a final nomination. This is the story of the Washington Post reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and they uncover the details of the Watergate scandal, which ultimately leads to President Nixon's resignation this Mm -hmm. is one of the true great journalism films like thrill thrilling journalistic movies right like i I feel like before this movie came out 
people didn't really think of journalism as being so suspenseful and, and frankly frightening, you know. Yeah. And this movie Definitely really not showed frightening. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and this showed what they actually have to go through to get their story out there. You know, it really, um, yeah, it really showcases the steps that journalists have to take. Not not only just to make sure their story is credible, but to make sure that they don't get killed while doing it. You know, I mean, we're talking about mm-hmm. they're taking down the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. That is no small task. And you feel the weight of that with every choice and step that these two take in the film. Um, Carl Bernstein and uh, Bob Woodward are two people who have remained in the conversation um, for the decades since then as two of the, you know, all-time great uh, journalists. Uh, I mean, just last year, a series of recorded conversations with Bob Woodward played a very heavy part in um, damaging Donald Trump's chances at uh, at re-election and may have been uh, one of the major factors in contributing to um, the end of his political career. Um, so, you know, these are two people who have remained um, prominent figures in the decades since. Um, and uh, Carl Bernstein is known for his incredible uh, biographies of some of the most prominent political figures um, of today, and Bob Woodward as well, for their uh, books on prominent political figures of the day. And they continue to, you know, just totally dominate in terms of journalism um 40 50 years later um but uh this movie is not bombastic and that's what i think is so interesting about it as a thriller is Mm -hmm. um the movie doesn't actually show the fallout first of all which i love um it just leads up to the dominoes falling and then it stops and and it creates this suspense and as a person who has a journalism degree and had a brief career as a newspaper reporter um it captures that excitement of getting a lead and following up on it and it captures that excitement of you know hearing this piece of information or getting this piece of information and realizing that you might have a time bomb on your hands you know yeah and uh and then going through that process of um following up on leads and trying to get people to talk and trying to people to get get people on the record or off the record with a certain quote or a statement uh trying to get documents trying to get all these different things the entire thrill ride of being a journalist beyond what this movie is actually talking about which is you know this defining moment of the 1970s and it's remarkable that this was made so quickly after the incidents happened. Um, it just perfectly encapsulates the the thrill of journalism in a way that I don't Definitely. think any other movie has ever done. So, Except for, um, I would say, Spotlight. I feel like this movie and oh, Spotlight yeah, yeah. are two of the same, you know, cut from the same cloth both brilliant in the way they depict journalism and also very thrilling um, in how they set it you, up as well. You know, um, I don't think that the movie I'm about to mention is as good as All the President's Been. I want to start out by saying that. 
But uh, what works as a really good prequel to All the President's Men, if you ever want a double feature, is The Post. Yes. Doesn't it? Yes, it does. Because The Post also takes place at the, at the Washington Post um, and deals with the scandal um, within the Nixon administration that happens right before yep. uh, Watergate. And um, it also has Ben Bradley, who was editor-in-chief at The Post, as a major character, played by Tom Hanks in The Post, and then Jason Robards plays him in All the President's Men. He wins Best Supporting Actor for this film. And um, the only thing about All the President's Men is it's more of a boys' game than uh, The Post, which has uh, which prominently features uh, Catherine Graham, who was the uh, publisher at the post during the time of Watergate. So, you know, knowing her part of the story, I do miss her now knowing that watching all the president's men, because I'm sure she was far more involved in what was happening than we, what we get to see in this movie. But, um, but all the president's men as it is, as it's contained is, is absolutely a perfect newspaper movie. It's so good. And I want to point out too, and highlight the, set direction the art direction of this movie as well they completely Ugh. recreate the washington post newsroom you know they weren't allowed to film in the actual place they had to recreate it at warner brothers in burbank but they do it perfectly i mean they even went so far as to take garbage from the washington post from like their trash cans take it to set so they would have real newspaper garbage you know what i mean and then like they also had to they replicated out-of-date phone books, and they purchased expensive desks and chairs to replicate it. Like, they went all out on their set design. Yes, and they, they built it, like, slightly smaller than scale. Um, mm. So that kind of the same thing as The Apartment in 1960, um, yep. where you had to make something, you had this much space, and you had to make something seem a little bit bigger. So you use the entire theory of making it slightly smaller to seem bigger. Yes. Um, which is a fun, which is a fun little note. Oh, and the, talking about this best actor conversation, isn't it ridiculous? Like, I, I mean, I yes. understand, but they both <laughs> do such a good, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman are both so good in this movie. <laughs> I was going to say, would you, it was my kind of my, my final question for this movie. Would you give both or either of them? A nomination i would like to but i don't know who i take out you know i know um, especially for you know yeah uh, well. because the the thing is like okay maybe if we had shuffled peter finch to supporting and we had yep. opened up a nomination there um yep. and because we haven't seen seven beauties we just assume that isn't as good um <laughs> you know <laughs> we then rare. if we're if we're nominating david carradine you know, we only have mm -hmm. one slot left, so exactly. Um, uh, so I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know, I know either. That, I know. I know that Dustin Hoffman has other great roles coming up, and this is probably Robert Redford's best performance. So maybe. Yeah, I feel like, and also it's like kind of Robert Redford's project. You know, this was kind of his passion project. He was yeah. very much involved in all the pre-production work on this movie. So mm -hmm. I think it would have been kind of awesome to give him a nomination for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, right? I mean, I don't, think, it is he, I don't think it's a win. I don't think it's a win, but I would have liked to have seen him include, especially considering that they gave supporting nominations to Jane Alexander um, yeah. and Jason very Robards. Small. Where I don't, very small. You know, Jane Alexander is in it for Barely like eight minutes movie. or so. And Jason she's Robards good. is She does what she's, she's supposed fine. to do. She's but it's fine. not, it's not to the but level of Beatrice Strait. You know. No, I think they're both kind of inconsequential, to be honest with you. Even Jason Robards, he's fine. He's a very strong presence in the movie. But I don't mind him having an. Know. A, a, you know, we'll get to this next week. But I, I think the person I would have win in the best supporting actor category is in the movie that won Best Picture. Personally. Yes, and we'll get into yeah. Can the, you yeah, can you guess what I'm supporting. previewing? I okay. sure can. Yes, I can. Yeah, yes, but yes, 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 yes. of the two, there's one I'd rather yes. win. Oh, so. definitely, Def- Yeah, probably the more. I also one. will say Lawrence Olivier is kind of iconic in Marathon Man. Lawrence but, Olivier um, is downright horrifying in Marathon Man. A hundred percent, he's brilliant. Is it safe? Is it safe? <laughs> is um, it safe? <laughs> uh, so, oh, this year is so tough. Okay. Um, uh, all right, yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about that. But I, but the performances are uniformly great. It's just that the whole movie... You know who maybe deserves a nomination from this film who doesn't have one? Is, yeah. um, uh, is, uh, hold on. I have to think of his name. He just passed away recently. Um, Hal Holbrook? Hal Holbrook, thank you. Um, yes, Deep Throat. As, as Deep Throat. Just follow the money. He, you yes. know, we don't know. In 1977... In 1976, when this movie came out, we didn't know who Deep Throat was. We didn't find out who Deep Throat was until about, I think, 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, and there was all sorts of speculations about who the who the informant was. You know, uh, one of the people that was speculated was was Diane Sawyer because she was um, a Washington. She was before her journalism career started, and she was working in Washington at the time. So I would have there... loved it have inter- if it had turned out to be her. That would have been <laughs> I know. so good. <laughs> Literally, my favorite, my favorite newswoman is Diane Sawyer. Um, also, because she married Mike Nichols, I just love that couple so much. Um, like yes. what? A, what? A, talk about power couple. That is a power couple. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, nobody knew who he was at this time, so they just had to ca- cast this generic guy to play the part and he had to do it without knowing anything about what his background was and how Holbrook does such, he's so memorable in the scenes yes. that you see that you kind of see him, you know? Yep. So very much so. I don't know. Um, I like that idea. That's a good idea. Now, when idea. looking back, yeah. the, there was a, a revote that happened. Uh, the Academy kind of put out feelers to say, if you could recast your vote for best picture for 1976, who would you choose today looking back? And the recast did give All the President's Men the best picture mm. win. So I'm curious, of these four, which one is your pick for best picture? So we're we're taking Rocky out of the conversation. Yes, right? Rocky's gone. Yes, just okay. these four we've talked about today. Because I have to, we have to talk through Rocky before I make my decision on who should win overall. Um, okay. Uh of these four network Mad as hell mm-hmm. I would agree with you. Yes. Okay. 
that's where I'm um, leaning as we, well. Yeah. That said, I think all the President's Men and Taxi Driver are perfect movies. Oh, yeah, I know. It's really hard to choose. I, it's between Network and President's Men for me. Taxi, Taxi Driver well. doesn't feel like a Best Picture winner to me. It, it just doesn't. feels so nasty. You know what I yeah, mean? I, like, it's just I like, don't, I want to shower after I watch it. Yeah, I don't think I can... I, and I don't think it needs it. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, our, our whole True. idea where we talk about, like, what what do we want to people to rediscover? Like, t- people are going to keep discovering Taxi Driver on its own. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, I don't know, All the President's Men I like because it so represents the time. Yep. Um, And it's, like, the closest you get to history being made. Like, it's it's almost... It's the movie takes place four years after the events that it's talking about, you know, um, and yeah. two years after um, Nixon resigned. But you know, the movie takes place like seventy two, seventy three. Um, but um, but Network also no movie has ever been more prophetic than Network for me. It's insane. You know? it's insane. It's insane. And what's crazy is. Um, Patty Shayevsky, when he comments about that, he says, I wasn't writing satire, as you all said I was. I was writing mm-hmm. what I saw and what I saw happening, which I think is even scarier. You know, people are like, oh, it's yeah. it's funny. It's satire. Look at this. It's like, no, 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 no. He was being dead serious. To me, that kind of just clinches Network as the winner because, as you mentioned, so prophetic, so just... You know, so ruthless in the way it mm-hmm. talks about television and networks and what that kind of media consumption is doing to humans. You know, it's fascinating. And when I watch I it, every time th- I watch it, you notice yeah. something different, you know, so another little piece of something. Like you even said, the singing in the rain poster, like there's just something, there's a small minute detail you'll pick up that means so much every time you watch it. Um, And like... Um, I do feel of the of the movies, Network seems to have been the one that's been talked about and reappraised the most over time. Like I oh, think yeah. people, I think more and more people discover it as time goes on. Um, yep. Uh, how just quickly before we before we end tonight, I thought it might um, tonight today whatever it is. <laughs> I thought it might be um, helpful to kind of look and see where these movies rank in the AFI Top 100. So we can talk about what order the Academy puts them in. Uh, Not the Academy, but the AFI puts them in. And uh, as of the 2007 list, Taxi Driver is number 52. Network is number 64. All the Mm -hmm. President's Men is 77. And Rocky Mm -hmm. is... 57 wow okay so the highest ranked one of those movies is taxi driver then rocky then network then all the president's men that is how they put them Oh, that is which interesting. is interesting. That's, it may end up being opposite is... of what I do. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And you know, I, yeah. And I guess I can kind of see that too. I mean, the AFIs, you know, they're kind of about, preserving you know uh mm-hmm. movies that we now look back on and be like oh this is clearly like a, a classic now especially with scorsese so i feel like they might be ranking taxi driver 
-hmm. a little bit higher just because of how popular De Niro and Scorsese are now looking back, you know? Um, And we'll get into, we'll get into why, I mean, like, Rocky, next week we're going to be talking about Rocky, and Mm -hmm. uh, we will also touch on some other things from the 76th Ceremony, uh, snubs, spotlights, all that stuff, but Rocky will be an interesting conversation, um, and the thing that I'm looking forward to about this conversation is the section where you and I will discuss what is Rocky if you remove the sequels. Yes, that will be very, very interesting. True, true, true. Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm excited to get into that. It does that change how you view the movie, basically. So that's something I want good to give people... That's the thought I want you guys to think about over the next week. And then we'll get to the best picture of 1976. Yeah, so join us next week, everybody. We'll talk more about 1976. <laughs>